when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company, Reduelysis, by James Joyce. Read today by Holly McNish and Michael Peterson. What proposal did Bloom, diambulist, father of Millie, somnambulist, make to Stephen, noctambulist? To pass, in repose, the hours intervening between Thursday, proper, and Friday, normal, on an extemporised cubicle in the apartment immediately above the kitchen and immediately adjacent to the sleeping apartment of his host and hostess. What various advantages would or might have resulted from a prolongation of such extemporisation? For the guest, security of domicile and seclusion of study. For the host, rejuvenation of intelligence, vicarious satisfaction. For the hostess, disintegration of obsession, acquisition of correct Italian pronunciation. Why might these several provisional contingencies between a guest and a hostess not necessarily preclude or be precluded by a permanent eventuality of reconciliatory union between a schoolfellow and a Jew's daughter? Because the way to daughter led through mother, the way to mother through daughter. To what inconsequent polysyllabic question of his host did the guest return a monosyllabic negative answer? If he had known the late Mrs Emily Cynical, accidentally killed at Sydney Parade Railway Station, 14 October 1903. What inchoate corollary statement was consequently suppressed by the host? A statement explanatory of his absence on the occasion of internment of Mrs Mary Dedalus, born Goulding, 26 June 1903. Vigil of the anniversary of the decease of Rudolf Bloom, born Virag. Was the proposal of asylum accepted? Promptly, inexplicably, with amicability, gratefully, it was declined. What exchange of money took place between host and guest? The former returned to the latter, without interest, a sum of money, one pound seven shillings, advanced by the latter to the former. What counter-proposals were alternately advanced, accepted, modified, declined, restated in other terms, re-accepted, ratified, reconfirmed? To inaugurate a pre-arranged course of Italian instruction, place the residence of the instructed. To inaugurate a course of vocal instruction, place the residence of the instructress. To inaugurate a series of static semi-static and peripatetic intellectual dialogues places the residence of both speakers if both speakers were resident in the same place. The Ship Hotel and Tavern, 6 Lower Abbey Street, W and E Connery, Proprietors. The National Library of Ireland, 10 Kildare Street, 
the National Maternity Hospital, 29, 30 and 31 Hall Street, a public garden, the vicinity of a place of worship, a conjunction of two or more public thoroughfares, the point of bisection of a right line drawn between their residences, if both speakers were resident in different places. What rendered problematic for Bloom the realisation of these mutually self-excluding propositions? The irreparability of the past, once at a performance of Albert Hengler's circus in the Rotunda, Rutland Square, Dublin, an intuitive party-coloured clown in quest of paternity had penetrated from the ring to a place in the auditorium where Bloom, solitary, was seated and had publicly declared to an exhilarated audience that he, Bloom, was his, the clown's, papa. The imprevidibility of the future. Once in the summer of 1898, he, Bloom, had marked a florin, two shillings, with three notches on the milled edge, and tendered it in payment of an account due and received by J and T Davy, family grocers, one Charlemont Mall, Grand Canal, for circulation on the waters of civic finance for possible circuitous or direct return. Was the clown Bloom's son? No. Had Bloom's coin returned? Never. Why would a recurrent frustration the more depress him? Because, at the critical turning point of human existence, he desired to amend many social conditions, the product of inequality and avarice and international animosity. He believed then that human life was infinitely perfectible, eliminating these conditions. There remained the generic conditions imposed by natural, as distinct from human law, as integral parts of the human whole, the necessity of destruction to procure alimentary sustenance, the painful character of the ultimate functions of separate existence, the agonies of birth and death, the monotonous menstruation of simian and, particularly, human females extending from the age of puberty to the menopause, inevitable accidents at sea, in mines and factories, certain very painful maladies, and the resultant surgical operations, innate lunacy and congenital criminality, decimating epidemics, catastrophic cataclysms which make terror the basis of human mentality, seismic upheavals, the epicentres of which are located in densely populated regions, the fact of vital growth through convulsions, of metamorphosis from infancy through maturity to decay. Why did he desist from speculation? Because... It was a task for a superior intelligence to substitute other, more acceptable phenomena in place of the less acceptable phenomena to be removed. Did Stephen participate in his dejection? He affirmed his significance as a conscious, rational animal, proceeding syllogistically from the known to the unknown and a conscious, rational reagent between a micro and a macrocosm, ineluctably constructed upon the incertitude of the void. Was this affirmation apprehended by Bloom? Not verbally, substantially. 
What comforted his misapprehension? That, as a competent, keyless citizen, he had proceeded energetically from the unknown to the known through the incertitude of the void. In what order of precedence, with what attendant ceremony, was the exodus from the house of bondage to the wilderness of inhabitation effected? Lighted candle in stick, borne by bloom, diaconal hat on ash plant, borne by Stephen. With what intonation secreto of what commemorative psalm? The 113th, modus peregrinus in exitu Israel de Egypto, Domus Jacob de Popolo Barbaro. What did each do at the door of egress? Bloom set the candlestick on the floor. Stephen put the hat on his head. For what creature was the door of egress a door of ingress? For a cat. What spectacle confronted them when they, first the host, then the guest, emerged silently, doubly dark from obscurity by a passage from the rear of the house into the penumbra of the garden? The heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit. With what meditations did Bloom accompany his demonstration to his companion of various constellations? Meditations of evolution, increasingly vaster, of the moon invisible in incipient lunation, approaching perigree, of the infinite, litiginous, scintillating, uncondensed Milky Way, discernible by daylight, by an observer placed at the lower end of a cylindrical, vertical shaft, 5,000 feet deep, sunk from the surface towards the centre of the earth, of Sirius, Alpha and Canis Major, 10 light years, 57 million million miles distant and in volume 900 times the dimension of our planet, of Arturus, of the procession of equinoxes, of Orion with belt and sextuple, sun, feta and nebula in which a hundred of our solar systems could be contained, of moribund and of nascent new stars such as Nova in 1901, of our system plunging towards the constellation of Hercules, of the parallax, of paralectic drift, of so-called fixed stars, in reality ever moving from immeasurable remote aeons to infinitely remote futures, in comparison with which the years, three score and ten, of allotted human life formed a parenthesis of infinitesimal brevity. Were there adverse meditations of involution increasingly less vast? Of the aeons of geological periods recorded in the stratifications of the earth, of the myriad, minute, entomological, organic existences concealed in cavities of the earth, beneath removable stones, in hives and mounds, of the microbes, germs, bacteria, bacilia, spermatosa, of the incalculable trillions of billions of millions of imperceptible molecules contained by cohesion of molecular affinity in a single pinhead, of the universe of human serum 
constellated with red and white bodies, themselves universes of void space, constellated with other bodies, each in continuity, its universe of divisible component bodies, of which each was again divisible in divisions of redivisible component bodies, dividends and divisors, ever diminishing without actual division, till, if the progress were carried far enough, not, nowhere, was never reached. Why did he not elaborate these calculations to a more precise result? Because, some years previously, in 1886, when occupied with the problem of the quadrature of the circle, he had learned of the existence of a number computed to a relative degree of accuracy to be of such magnitude and of so many places, e.g. the ninth power of the ninth power of nine, that the result, having been obtained, 33 closely printed volumes of a thousand pages each of innumerable choirs and reams of India paper would have to be requisitioned in order to contain the complete tale of its printed integers of units, tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions, the nucleus of the nebulae of every digit of every series containing succinctly the potentiality of being raised to the utmost kinetic elaboration of any power of any of its powers. Did he find the problem of the inhabitability of the planets and their satellites by a race, given in species, and of the possible social and moral redemption of said race by a redeemer, easier of solution? Of a different order of difficulty. Conscious that the human organisms, normally capable of sustaining an atmospheric pressure of 19 tonnes, when elevated to a considerable altitude in the terrestrial atmosphere, suffered with arithmetical progression of intensity, according as the line of demarcation between troposphere and stratosphere was approximated, from nasal hemorrhage, impeded respiration and vertigo. When proposing this problem for solution, he had conjectured as a working hypothesis which could not be proved impossible that a more adaptable and differently anatomically constructed race of beings might subsist otherwise under Martian, Mercurial, Veneral, Jovian, Saturnian, Neptunian, or Uranian, sufficient and equivalent conditions, though an apogean humanity of beings created in varying forms with finite differences resulting similar to the whole and to one another would probably there, as here, remain inalterably and inalienably attached to vanities, to vanities of vanities, and all that is vanity. And the problem of possible redemption? The minor was proved by the major. Which various features of constellations were in turn considered? The various colours significant of various degrees of vitality. White, yellow, crimson, vermilion, cinnabar. Their degrees of brilliancy, their magnitudes revealed up to and including the seventh. Their positions, the Wagner's star, Walsingham Way, the chariot of David, 
the annular cinctures of Saturn, the condensation of spiral nebulae into suns, the interdependent gyrations of double suns, the independent synchronous discoveries of Galileo, Simon, Marius, Piazzi, Leverrier, Herschel, Gall, the systemizations attempted by Bode and Kepler of cubes of distances and squares of times of revolution, the almost infinite compressibility of hirsute comets and their vast elliptical, aggressive and re-entrant orbits from perhelion to aphelion, the side-real origin of meteoric stones, the Libyan floods on Mars about the period of birth of the younger astroscopist, the annual recurrence of meteoric showers about the period of the feast of S. Lawrence, Martyr, 10 August, the monthly recurrence known as the new moon with the old moon in our arms, the posited influence of celestial on human bodies, the appearance of a star, first magnitude of exceeding brilliancy, dominating by night and day, a new luminous sun generated by the collision and amalgamation in incandescence of two non-luminous ex-suns about the period of the birth of William Shakespeare over Delta in the recumbent, never-setting constellation of Cassiopeia and of a star, second magnitude of similar origin but less her brilliancy, which had appeared in and disappeared from the constellation of the Corona Septentrionalis about the period of the birth of Leopold Bloom and of other stars of presumably similar origin, which had effectively or presumably appeared in and disappeared from the constellation of Andromeda about the period of the birth of Stephen Dedalus, and in and from the constellation of Origa, some years after the birth and death of Rudolf Bloom, Jr., and in and from other constellations some years before or after the birth or death of other persons. The attendant phenomena of eclipses, solar and lunar, from immersion to immersion, abatement of wind, transit of shadow, taciturnity of winged creatures, emergence of nocturnal or crepuscular animals, persistence of infernal light, obscurity of terrestrial waters, pallor of human beings. His, Bloom's, logical conclusion, having weighed the matter, and allowing for possible error. That it was not a heaven tree, not a heaven grot, not a heaven beast, not a heaven man, that it was a utopia, there being no known method from the known to the unknown, an infinity renderable equally finite by the suppositious probable apposition of one or more bodies equally of the same and of different magnitudes, a mobility of illusory forms immobilised in space, remobilised in air, a past which possibly had ceased to exist as a present before its future spectators had entered actual present 
existence? Was he more convinced of the aesthetic value of the spectacle? Indubitably, in consequence of the reiterated examples of poets in the delirium of the frenzy of attachment or in the abasement of rejection invoking ardent sympathetic constellations or the frigidity of the satellite of their planet. Did he then accept as an article of belief the theory of astrological influences upon sublunary disasters? It seemed to him as possible of proof as of confutation and the nomenclature employed in its selenographical charts as attributable to verifiable intuition as to fallacious analogy. The lake of dreams, the sea of rains, the gulf of Jews, the ocean of fecundity. What special affinities appeared to him to exist between the moon and woman? Her antiquity in preceding and surviving successive Tellurian generations her nocturnal predominance, her satellitic dependence, her luminary reflection, her constancy under all her phases, rising and setting by her appointed times, waxing and waning, the forced invariability of her aspect, her indeterminate response to inaffirmative interrogation, her potency over effluent and refluent waters, her power to enamour, to mortify, to invest with beauty, to render insane, to incite to and aid delinquency, the tranquil inscrutability of her visage, the terribility of her isolated, dominant, implacable, resplendent propinquity, her omens of tempest and of calm, the stimulation of her light, her motion and her presence, the admonition of her craters, her arid seas, her silence her splendour when visible, her attraction when invisible. What visible luminous sign attracted Bloom's who attracted Stephen's gaze? In the second story, rear, of his, Bloom's house, the light of a paraffin oil lamp with a bleak shade projected on a screen of roller blind supplied by Frank O'Hara, window blind, curtain pole and revolving shutter, manufacturer, 16... Anger Street. How did he elucidate the mystery of an invisible person, his wife, Marion, Molly Bloom, denoted by a visible splendid sign, a lamp? With indirect and direct verbal allusions or affirmations, with subdued affection and admiration, with description, with impediment, with suggestion. Both then were silent? Silent each contemplating the other in both mirrors of the reciprocal flesh of their his-not-his-fellow-faces. Were they indefinitely inactive? At Stephen's suggestion, at Bloom's instigation, both, first Stephen, then Bloom, in penumbra urinated, their sides contiguous, their organs of micturition reciprocally rendered invisible by manual circumposition. Their gazes, first Bloom's, then Stephen's, elevated to the projected luminous and semi-luminous shadow. Similarly? The trajectories of their first sequent, then simultaneous urinations were dissimilar. Bloom's longer, less irient, in the incomplete form of the bifurcated penultimate alphabetical letter, who in his ultimate year at high school 
1880, had been capable of attaining the point of greatest altitude against the whole concurrent strength of the institution, 210 scholars. Stevens higher, more sibilant, who in the ultimate hours of the previous day had augmented by diuretic consumption an insistent vesicle pressure. What different problems presented themselves to each concerning the invisible, audible, collateral organ of the other? To Bloom, the problems of irritability, tumescence, rigidity, reactivity, dimension, sanitariness, velocity. To Stephen, the problem of the sacerdotal integrity of Jesus circumcised. 1st of January, holiday of obligation to hear Mass and abstain from unnecessary servile work. And the problem as to whether the divine prepus, the carnal bridal ring of the Holy Roman Catholic Apostolic Church, conserved in Calcutta, were deserving of simple hyperduly, or of the fourth degree of latria accorded to the abscission of such divine excrescences as hair and toenails. What celestial sign was by both simultaneously observed? A star precipitated with great apparent velocity across the firmament from Vega in the Lyre above the zenith beyond the star group of the tress of Berenice towards the zodiacal sign of Leo. How did the centripetal remainer afford egress to the centrifugal departer? By inserting the barrel of an arrugated male key in the hole of an unstable female lock obtaining a purchase on the bow of the key and turning its wards from right to left, withdrawing a bolt from its staple, pulling inward spasmodically an obsolescent, unhinged door and revealing an aperture for free egress and free ingress. How did they take leave, one of the other, in separation? Standing perpendicular at the same door and on different sides of its base, the lines of their valedictory arms meeting at any point and forming any angle less than the sum of two right angles. What sound accompanied the union of their tangent, the disunion of their respectively centrifugal and centripetal hands? The sound of the peal of the hour of the night by the chime of the bells in the Church of St George. What echoes of that sound were by both and each heard? By Stephen, Liliata, Rutilantium, Turma, Circundet, Eubilantium, Te Virginum, Chorus, Excipiat. By Bloom, Hey-ho, 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 hey-ho. Where were the several members of the company which with bloom that day at the bidding of that peel had travelled from Sandy Mount in the south to Glasnevin in the north. Martin Cunningham, in bed. Jack Power, in bed. Simon Dedalus, in bed. Tom Kernan, in bed. Ned Lambert, in bed. Joe Hines, in bed. John Henry Menton, in bed. Bernard Corrigan, in bed. Patsy Dignam, in bed, Paddy Dignam, in the grave. Alone? What did Bloom hear? The double reverberation of retreating feet on the heaven-born earth, the double vibration of a Jew's harp in the resonant lane. Alone? What did Bloom feel? The cold of interstellar space, thousands of degrees below freezing point or the absolute zero of Fahrenheit, centigrade or Rayamore. 
the incipient intimations of proximate dawn. Of what did bell chime and hand touch and footstep and lone chill remind him? Of companions, now in various manners, in different places defunct. Percy Apjohn, killed in action, modern river. Philip Gilligan, Phytisis, Jervis Street Hospital. Matthew F. Kane, accidental drowning, Dublin Bay. Philip Moisel, Paimia, Hatesbury Street. Michael Hart, Petisis, Mater Miscordia Hospital. Patrick Dignam, Apoplexy, Sandy Mount. What prospect of what phenomena inclined him to remain? The disparition of three final stars, the diffusion of daybreak, the apparition of a new solar disk. Had he ever been a spectator of those phenomena? Once. In 1887, after a protected performance of charades in the house of Luke Doyle, Kimmage, he had awaited with patience the apparition of the diurnal phenomenon. Seated on a wall, his gaze turned in the direction of Miss Rack, the east. He remembered the initial para-phenomena? More active air, a matutinal, distant cock, ecclesiastical clocks at various points, a vine music, the isolated treads of an early wayfarer, the visible diffusion of the light of an invisible luminous body, the first golden limb of the resurgent sun, perceptible low on the horizon. Did he remain? With deep inspiration he returned, retraversing the garden, re-entering the passage, reclosing the door. With brief suspiration he reassumed the candle, reascended the stairs, reapproached the door of the front room, hall floor, and re-entered. What suddenly arrested his ingress? The right temporal lobe of the hollow sphere of his cranium came into contact with a solid timber angle where, an infinitesimal but sensible fraction of a second later, a painful sensation was located in consequence of antecedent sensations transmitted and registered. Describe the alterations affected in the disposition of the articles of furnitures. A sofa, upholstered in prune plush, had been translocated from opposite the door to the ingle side near the compactly furled Union Jack, an alteration which he had frequently intended to execute. The blue and white checker inlaid majolica top table had been placed opposite the door in the place vacated by the prune plush sofa. The walnut sideboard, a projecting angle of which had momentarily arrested his ingress, had been moved from its position beside the door to a more advantageous but more perilous position in front of the door. Two chairs had been moved from right and left of the ingle side to the position originally occupied by the blue and white checker inlaid majolica top table. Describe them. 1. A squat stuffed easy chair with stout arms extended and back slanted to the rear, which, repelled in recoil, had then upturned in a regular fringe of a rectangular rug and now displayed on its amply upholstered seat a centralised diffusing and diminishing discoloration. The other, a slender, splayfoot chair of glossy cane curves, placed directly opposite the former, its frame from top to seat and from seat to base being varnished dark brown, its seat being a bright circle of white-plated brush. What significances attached to these two chairs? Significances of similitude, of posture, 
of symbolism, of circumstantial evidence, of testimonial supermanence. What occupied the position originally occupied by the sideboard? A vertical piano, cadby, with exposed keyboard, its closed coffin supporting a pair of long yellow ladies' gloves and an emerald ashtray containing four consumed matches, a partly consumed cigarette and two discoloured ends of cigarettes, its music crest supporting the music in the key of G natural for voice and piano of love's old sweet song, Words by G. Clifton Bingham, composed by J. L. Malloy, sung by Madame Antoinette Sterling. Open at the last page with the final indications ad libitum, forte, pedal, animato, sustained, pedal, ritirando, close. With what sensations did Bloom contemplate in rotation these objects? With strain, elevating a candlestick. With pain, feeling on his right temple a contused tumescence, with attention, focusing his gaze on a large, dull, passive and slender bright active, with solicitation, bending and downturning the upturned rug fringe, with amusement, remembering Dr Malachy Mulligan's scheme of colour containing the gradation of green, with pleasure. Repeating the words, an antecedent act, and perceiving through various channels of internal sensibility the consequent and concomitant tepid pleasant diffusion of gradual discoloration. His next proceeding? From an open box on the Majolica top table, he extracted a black diminutive cone one inch in height, placed it on its circular base on a small tin plate, placed his candlestick on the right corner of the mantelpiece, produced from his waistcoat a folded page of prospectus, illustrated, entitled Egendat Netame, unfolded the same, examined it superficially, rolled it into a thin cylinder, ignited it in the candle flame, applied it when ignited to the apex of the cone till the latter reached the stage of rutilance, placed the cylinder in the base of the candlestick, disposing its unconsumed part in such a manner as to facilitate total combustion. What followed this operation? That truncated conical crater, summit of the diminutive volcano, emitted a vertical and serpentine fume, redolent of aromatic oriental incense. What homothetic objects, other than the candlestick, stood on the mantelpiece? A timepiece of striated Connemara marble, stopped at the hour of 4.46am on the 21st of March 1896, matrimonial gift of Matthew Dillon. A dwarf tree of glacial arborescence under a transparent bell-shade. Matrimonial gift of Luke and Caroline Doyle. An embalmed owl. Matrimonial gift of Alderman John Hooper. What interchanges of looks took place between these three objects in bloom? In the mirror of the gilt-bordered pier-glass, the undecorated back of the dwarf tree regarded the upright back of the embalmed owl. Before the mirror, the matrimonial gift of Alderman John Hooper with a clear, melancholy, wise, bright, motionless, compassionate gaze regarded Bloom, while Bloom, with obscure, tranquil, profound, motionless, compassionated gaze regarded the matrimonial gift of Luke and Caroline Doyle. What composite, asymmetrical image in the mirror then attracted his attention? The image of a solitary, ipsa relative, mutable, alia relative man. Why solitary ipso relative? 
Brothers and sisters had he none, yet that man's father was his grandfather's son. Why mutable, alial relative? From infancy to maturity, he had resembled his maternal procreatrix. From maturity to senility, he would increasingly resemble his paternal creator.